Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. third part of this three-part series I did with Josh Scott. Let's get into it. I don't know if you wrote this, but I know your church's Instagram got so much heat for making a post declaring that the Bible is not the word of God. You have a series you did, or like you wrote some stuff on your blog about hell. It sounds like you were inclusive before you left the church that you, you left before you came to Grace Point. How did you, a guy from Kentucky, become inclusive and affirming of the LGBTQ plus community. I'd love for you to tackle any of that if you'd like. So that post on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter really got some some traction. Over a million people saw it across all those platforms. And it came from a sermon I'd given that day on the Bible from a progressive Christian lens. Um, and one of the things I said in the sermon, and I've said it a bunch of times before and since, is the Bible is not inerrant and infallible, and it is not the Word of God, because it doesn't claim to be. The Word of God, and it's, it's really easy. If you locate the Word of God in the pages of a text, then it kind of becomes static. It kind of becomes frozen, and it's canonized, and, and we can act like it's, it has say over us, but we also have quite a bit of say over it. And in the Bible, the, the Word of God, like it, it'll start like this in the prophets. The Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I don't imagine that was like delivered by an Amazon drone that he opened it up and there was a scroll in there, right? The, the Word of God in the Scriptures is sort of this experience of the divine where you are given sort of this word to speak, to announce, to proclaim. Now sometimes, and what I often what I said in the sermon that didn't get articulated probably through the graphic is that sometimes we hear the word of God through the words of the Bible, right? I think that's true. But the Bible itself is because whose whose Bible? Just happens to be the Protestant Bible or is it the Catholic scriptures that include the Deuterocanonical books or is it the Ethiopian Opian Tawahedo church that has like 82 books in their canon? Like whose is the word of God? Of course it's going to be ours. Ours, of course, right? And then when you get to the New Testament in the Gospel of John, you have the word became flesh. In the message paraphrase, it goes, uh, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, right? Which is just kind of a great vibe to it. Yeah, I just don't think the, the Bible is big enough to contain the word of God. Again, I think we hear the word of God through the Bible. I think we also hear things that are preserved in Scripture that are not the word of God and that actually function in the opposite direction. And I think we, that, what that does then is says everything in Scripture is of equal importance and everything in Scripture is true across the board. And actually what sometimes we have in Scripture is we have an argument between different viewpoints. Let me give you one of my favorite examples. Let's say you go read wisdom literature, Proverbs, that basically says if you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. You'll be blessed. Things will be great. Up into the right, baby. Job enters the chat and says, actually, that's not true. That's not how it always works out. Sometimes, if you do the right thing, you get rewarded. Sometimes, if you do the right thing, everything still unravels. And it's way more complicated than just this black and white reality we try to create. Let me give you another example. The reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, right? So after the exile, they come back. And at the end of those books, 
you have this sort of, you know, one of our problems is we haven't been faithful. And so what we need to do is if any of you have married a foreign woman, you need to divorce your foreign wives and you send her and your children away. We, we need to get rid of the foreign influence, right? So divorce your foreign wives and get rid of them. Most scholars think the book of Ruth was written in response to that. Set in the time of the judges. But how does the book of Ruth go? The, Ruth is not an Israelite. She's from Moab. And at the end of the story, Ruth has not only saved her Israelite mother-in-law, she is in the line of the greatest Jewish king, David. It's almost like the book of Ruth is saying, gosh, if we were to put away all of the foreign influence in our community, we wouldn't have David. The Bible is not univocal, it is multivocal. And it's our spiritual ancestors often out loud processing and wrestling with really complex things across generations. That's why people are like, why do we still need the Bible? Well, number one, I think it's fascinating. I think it's inspiring. I think it reminds us sometimes of where we don't want to go. Sometimes it calls us into new and uncharted territory. But it's it's the record of our spiritual ancestors pushing and pulling and wrestling and then inviting us to do so as well. And so I think it actually still, for me as a progressive Christian, the Bible plays a vital role in my my own faith and in the way I choose to lead my community. I preach from the Bible every single week and plan to continue. Oh, what was the what was the other one? Hell. In the entirety of the Old Testament, there generally was not a belief in the afterlife. There was this idea of Sheol, which meant the grave, which wasn't an afterlife. It's where do you go, where do people go when they die? They go to Sheol. If you understand Greek mythology, it's got a little Hades to it, but it's not like a personal afterlife experience. It's just where you're you go. And you're not living, you're not doing a thing, it's just the holding place of but so there's no afterlife, there's no reward or punishment, there's just Sheol. After the exile, which began in the 500s, lasted for 70 years. So they, they go into Babylon, but then they're taken over. Babylon is taken over by the Persian Empire. And there's all of this sort of influence that comes in. Um, and so that in the, that period of time, they import some of these beliefs. They bring it back with them from exile. One of the groups to do that was a group called the Pharisees. And they were actually um, pretty liberal because they were willing to embrace things like angels and demons and resurrection, afterlife, all of that stuff. The Pharisees, the Sadducees who ran the temple did not. They did not believe in resurrection. Even in the days of Jesus, they actually asked Jesus a question about it, and they're being condescending when they do it, I think. Like, oh, you believe in the resurrection. So that was a, a a new thing within the Jewish faith. And you had people who had accepted it and people who had not accepted it. Does it sound like the world we... We live in, in the Christian no tradition today. Like and so you, have, so you have this ongoing debate. Jesus seemed, it seems like Jesus was somebody who import, like, held on to some of those beliefs. But look, when it comes to hell, when Jesus says hell, it's the Greek word Gehenna, which comes from Hebrew, which is an actual place. It's the Valley of Hinnom. And it was a place on the outside of Jerusalem that many people say by Jesus' day had become a town dump where they were burning trash. It was a place that was sort of had this, un, this sort of cursedness about it. And the reason is because if you read the Hebrew scriptures, it was in that valley that some of the Jewish kings sacrificed their firstborn children in the fire to the god Molech. What we call hell was an actual place, a literal place in the world where people at one point practiced child sacrifice. And so that it had quite the reputation. I don't believe people go to hell and are tortured forever. I don't believe in that. But I think Jesus' language about hell in the Gospels, I think is related to the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think Jesus' warnings about hell are if we don't pursue justice and if we don't learn to live with one another in compassion, and if we think we're going to hack our way to, to victory against Rome, this is where it's going. This whole place is going to be turned into hell. Gehenna. 
And Jesus wouldn't have even called it that. He would have called it the Aramaic name, right? Because Jesus very likely didn't speak Greek. I think so much of the Gospels are written, Mark was written just after or during the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think in some ways, Mark is part of Mark's Gospel is saying, we were, we, Jesus warned us, will we listen? Are we going to take this path? If we think that violence can bring peace, this whole thing's going to look like Gehenna. I think when I wrote the piece you're talking about, I titled it, Hell Doesn't Exist, But It Is Real. And I think that's true, because I think hell is a, can become a metaphor for the way we choose to show up in the world, the way we choose to live, whether that's geopolitically or whether that's individually, you know, in communities. I don't know what I think about the afterlife, to be honest with you. Like, people will say, what do you believe about the afterlife? And I'll check my calendar to see what day it is, because I have a different opinion most of the time. In my most optimistic, I think that we continue. I don't think the God that I believe in tortures people for all eternity. That's just not something I can get behind any longer. Same. So I'm curious about how did a Kentucky boy become LGBTQ plus affirming? When people ask me this, I'm always like, maybe I should just make up a story because <laughs> I wish there was one. But what I can tell you is I grew up with bigotry like most people in my generation, in the place I grew up. I can remember when my wife and I hadn't been married very long and friends of ours started coming out to us and I loved them and I knew them. Like I, I knew them as like we'd gone to church together. I'd spent time watching them love people and serve people and care about people. And I just was like, I can't believe that somehow that them being honest about who they are is a problem for God when they're actually doing so much good and beautiful. Like, I can't imagine God having a problem with them being their truest selves in the world. But I didn't know what to do with that. Definitely wouldn't talk about it because I knew that if we talk about this, then it's going to be. But it, like when we talk about it, my wife and I would be like, when did we? It wasn't so, we didn't even really have a conversation about it. It was just sort of like a place we both were like, yeah. I think I want my friends to have a full, happy life, just like I want for us, which would mean if they choose to, if, if they want to get married, if they want to have kids, if they want to, like, whatever I want to enjoy, I, I want them to have it if they want it. And that was just like, it was in there, and I didn't know what to do with it. And so I did what you do, right? Like, I went back to the Bible, because that's what happens, to bring it full circle. We have experiences that do not fit our understanding. Like, I, I'll tell you this, every time somebody has come out to me, every time a friend has trusted me with that information every time I felt like I should take off my shoes because I felt like I was on holy ground that when somebody would would come to me and open their heart and and be so vulnerable like the opposite of Genesis 3 right Genesis 3 is about the loss of vulnerability and they would dare to be brave enough to risk I just always felt like that was a holy moment and so I went back to the Bible and I started to try to reread scripture and understand is what does the Bible actually say about this have we interpreted it right? And I found out, no, I don't think we have. Now, I'll tell you where I'm probably different today is I don't need the Bible <laughs> to tell me that it's okay to affirm my LGBTQ brothers and sisters and siblings. I don't need the Bible to tell me that because there's lots of things the Bible seems to understand that we understand differently now, like the fact that it's not a three-tiered universe and that actually the sun doesn't move around the earth. It's the opposite. Like we've, we've learned things about human beings, about the universe, and so, of course, some of their ancient understandings are going to leave us wanting. Now, I don't think the Bible actually is talking about what we're talking about. I don't think the Bible condemns LGBTQ plus community. I don't, because I don't think the Bible Conceive. conceives of the LGBTQ plus community. For me, though, it began with being able to reimagine the scriptures, reinterpret the scriptures in a way that I think was more contextually faithful. But now I affirm because I believe God affirms. And I affirm because it's the human and just and kind and loving thing to do. I, mean, I wish I had that moment where the scales fell off my eyes and I was like, who are you, Lord? And, <laughs> but for me, it was just sitting across from people I care about and them being honest with me telling me part of their story that they'd maybe never spoken out loud to another person. 
how can I say anything other than I love you and I support you and I'm safe and I want you to have everything you want. And I've just become convinced, Mike, that if at the end of the whole thing, if I end up being more compassionate and loving and embracing than our God is, then I will happily line up with the people going to hell because I don't really want to spend eternity in the presence of that. The good news is I do not believe I am more compassionate, <laughs> generous, and loving than God is. I think, I think God... It's not that God changes, right? That's the thing people worry about. Like, oh, you're saying God changes. No, no, no. I'm saying that we've been following breadcrumbs and that what we're doing right now is, is not saying, well, God condemned this, but now we celebrate it. No, no, no. What I'm saying is God has never been what we said God was. But at a particular time and place, this is all our human spiritual ancestors could understand. But little by little, their eyes were open to all sorts of things. And little by little, our eyes are being opened. I am being shown as a 40-year-old person ways that I have been complicit in a lot of horrible things in the world. Even if, even if just by my inaction. I've seen over time, looking back on things and remembering things from my family growing up, that now I look back and go, gosh, that was actually really racist. Gosh, that was really homophobic. We would never, I would never have said as a kid, gosh, we have racism in our family. But looking back, I realize, knowing the capacity for that, knowing that I don't want to be that, knowing that I want to become more and more aware and more conscious and anti-racist, and I want to be an ally for my LGBTQ uh, plus siblings, right? Like, just, re just realizing that, that that's... That's all we're doing. We're, I'm not saying that God is changing. I'm saying we are. And that God has always been the one out in front of us, inviting us, calling us, wooing us, and saying, just, just one more step. Just Okay, now one more step. One more. Oh, you're so close. Get there. One more step. God's always been out in front. Beautiful. What do you believe about demons and angels, but specifically when you see Jesus delivering people in the Gospels, I'm assuming, again, it's coming back to what does that mean for us? Why is this included? How do you interpret? And then also, how do you then interpret deliverance ministers today? Or like that whole like part of the conversation? Yeah, thoughts? When I read those stories now, when I see demon possession in the Gospels, I think it is related to empire. Let me give you the, the textbook example is the story of Legion. So there's a man who is possessed by a demon named Legion, which is a Roman garrison of troops, like around 6,000, I think. Uh, and this man lives in the great, in the, like around, among the tombs, which is an unclean place. And he's in such deep pain that he's howling and he's harming himself. That's the story. And Jesus comes and confronts the legion demon, casts it out into a herd of swine that then go barreling toward the water and drown themselves. Now, I don't know how, as a first century person, you hear that story and don't go, this is about Jesus teaching us how to get rid of the Romans. Because it's also interesting that some of the Roman legions in that area, their emblem, one of them was a swine, right? So I think this is pretty on the nose for first century folks. And I think what we're being told is, first of all, the empire is oppressing people and it's causing people deep, deep pain. And I think wherever you read about demon possession in the gospels, you're seeing someone in pain. You're seeing somebody suffering. You're seeing somebody who's being oppressed. And it's interesting, the spirits are called unclean too, right? Sometimes it gets translated evil, but unclean is a different thing, right? It's not just that, it's, it's making our land unclean. It's making us unclean just by having this oppressive presence here. And so I think Jesus was actually trying to teach people how to get rid of Rome nonviolently. 
how do we get rid of Rome? I could do six hours on this, so let, maybe we don't jump into all of it. But just to say, I think I think that this story, and I, I tend to read demon stories as being stories about what empire does to people and the liberative work of Jesus and the communities Jesus that gather around Jesus to try to do that liberative action in the world. I grew up Southern Baptist, right? The Frozen Chosen. We weren't casting out demons. We were we were arguing about what women could and couldn't do in the church. Uh, unfortunately, I don't personally believe in that there are these evil demonic spirits that are taking people over. I also am like, that's just me. Other people have had other experiences and I'm not making value judgments or telling them their experiences are right or wrong. I'm saying in my experience, I just don't. I take those stories in the gospels to be about empire, the effects of empire. I think Jesus is saying, here's how we do it. We're not going to be able to go toe to toe with Rome. We're not going to be able to hack our way to, let's do this. Let's create communities where we take care of each other where we make sure everybody has their needs met, where we don't participate in the unjust economy of the empire, right? There's, it's fascinating to me that when they ask Jesus, should we pay taxes? What is Jesus' response? Everybody assumes he's saying yes. Actually, no. What is he saying? Show me a coin. What doesn't he have? A coin. I, I think there's story after story. I think the parable of the talents is not, I think Jesus is the third servant. So, and this is, so I'm writing a book that is going to come out in April of next year. Yeah, yeah, it's called Bible Stories for Grownups. And this is one of the stories I'm going to talk about in the book. The story is about this powerful person who entrusts his property to some servants. He's going to go away and get some power, some political power, which happened. King Herod actually did that. He went to Rome to be made king. So there's winks of history in this parable. In Luke, though, Luke's version tells us that Jesus tells this story when they were headed to Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to come all at once. And then he tells this story. He invests the talents in his servants. Two of them multiply it, and they're rewarded. One doesn't, and he's punished. The servant who doesn't do anything says to the the, the powerful master, I, "I knew you're a hard man. You harvest where you haven't sown. You're, you know. So I just I just buried this." And he says, "Okay, you know that that's how I am. Why didn't you do more? You should have put it on it and got interest." And then he punishes him. There are all sorts of problems with it now. I was told, well, if you don't use your talents for God, God will take them away. What does that have to do with the kingdom of God coming all at once? What does that have to do with what's about to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus tells the story as they're going to Jerusalem. What was going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus was going to be executed. He tells this story just before he's going to be executed. Here's what I think he's saying. And by the way, to take interest was against the Torah. So is Jesus telling a story where he's like, yeah, God wants you to take interest. Violates the Torah. I think what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to engage in protest, and we're going to resist the system. We're going to divest from an unjust economy that's harming our people, and they're going to kill me for it. I think that's the story. And I think Jesus, God is not a hard, evil dictator. God is not a punisher. God doesn't create victims. God stands on the side of victims. In stories like this, in stories like the story of the wedding party where the person get kick, gets kicked out for not wearing the right clothes, if we start putting Jesus in the story of the, as the person punished and the empire as the one doing the punishing, it makes a lot more sense of what Jesus is doing. It makes a lot more sense of the stories Jesus is telling. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, let me tell you why I'm, I'm about to get executed. They're not killing me to die for the sins of the world. They're killing me because I'm trying to lead a resistance movement, a nonviolent resistance movement against this empire. And I think that's what the first communities, I think that's what Paul's teaching people to do. How to resist the empire and create communities that are deeply human with one another.
in your line of work, as unique and nuanced and specific as, as controversial as it is, is there a confession you would have? So I did a sermon during the pandemic on the story of the widow's might and how we've told that story to praise her. Oh, she gave all she had. But what's interesting is Jesus tells that story right after he gives a warning that there are specific people who want to devour widows' houses. And then there's this woman giving all she has while the rich are pouring what they have in. And then right after that, he sort of says, this whole temple thing's in trouble. I think Jesus isn't praising this widow. I think he's condemning a system that would take everything she has to live on. One of the things I said in that sermon was, we're in the middle of pandemic. If giving to our community is hard for you, please don't. We have to rethink how we engage money. And then what I ended with was, I don't know, like, I think Jesus would, would be deeply troubled by our system of capitalism. You'd be deeply troubled by how this works. I, I benefit from it. I'm really struggling with what that means to follow Jesus and take that seriously while also enjoying all the things I enjoy. So I just, I, I'm living in a terrible tension of, I think I know what Jesus is saying, and I think it's really challenging, and I get why the rich young ruler would walk away. How does one live in America in the 21st century and take Jesus really seriously. Wow, okay, so I'm gonna land this plane. If people wanted to follow you, engage with your work, what are some places they can connect or find you? How do you send me hate mail, that sort of thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, my home address is, I have a site where I write, it's called um, joshscott.online, and you can subscribe, it's free, and I typically we'll try to post uh, once a week some sort of thing, whether it's about does hell exist, or you know, sometimes it's less controversial and more pastoral, but often has an edge to it. Pastoral edge. I haven't done it as much lately because I'm working on writing this book, um, which comes out April 4th of 2023. And then if you want to follow me online on Instagram and Twitter, I'm Josh underscore A underscore Scott. Would you want them to plug into Gracepoint at all? Yeah, if they would want to. Yeah, gracepoint.net, Gracepoint with an E on the end. We stream right now. Uh, we're on YouTube on Sunday mornings at 1030. Um, but the stream goes live at 10.15 because we have a growing online community who like to get together and hang out and chat before church starts. Yeah, right now we also meet in person on Sundays at 10.30 at 3rd and Lindsley, which is a concert, music venue, bar, grill here in Nashville. Josh, thank you so much for having this conversation yeah, with me. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for sharing these things. I know, you know, even my audience, they're going to be like, Bleh! I'm going to get heat for having you here. Thank you for sharing all that and being willing to express that and substantiate where you're coming from. And ah. Uh, Thanks for taking the heat and having me here. <laughs> for sure. My pleasure. I think we do have a lot of work to do in terms of recovering from what we've done with all this stuff. And I just love that you're doing this and so respect your voice and the work you're doing in the world. And this concludes part three of my interview series with Josh. Thank you so much for watching these interviews. I hope that they were encouraging, thought-provoking, inspiring. Again, I just want to remind you, if you have interest in getting deeper into the deconstruction conversation, I have a couple of options I'd love to share with you for you to get further down that road. One, you can check out NUMA Plus. I'll provide a link below for you to do that. I do a deconstruction series, just kind of getting into the perspective, the, the reason behind this, and some of the different things that you want to look at when it comes to deconstructing what it is that Christianity has even become at this point and what we as moral, ethical people need to do with where we are and where we need to go. And then I also want to let you know about a probably more involved space. Um, this is a mentorship group that I personally run called Ashes. We meet every week. Um, this is a group of people who are deconstructing together. We're pulling things apart. We're sharing and confessing our experiences in our upbringing in Christianity. And what does that mean for us now? What do we see in scripture now? What do we hear from the Holy Spirit now? What do we believe it means to most faithfully follow Jesus and demonstrate who God is in the world today? Correcting some of the error that we were indoctrinated with in the early stages of our Christianity. If you're interested in either of those things, you can check out the links below as well. Josh Scott, you can find him in lots of places. I provided some links below for you to see those as well. We'll see you next time.
Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.